Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Chapter 3 of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty is titled Of Individuality as One of the Elements of Well-Being. And so when we see that, we might want to ask, great, what is this individuality that you're talking about? What does it include? What does it encompass? What is its scope? So this is a central question. And he starts out early on saying that individuality should assert itself where not the person's own character but the tradition or customs of other people are the rule of conduct. There is wanting one of the principal ingredients of human happiness and quite the chief ingredient of individual and social progress. So that makes individuality sound like something flowing out of our own character. He'll use words like spontaneity a little bit later or originality and that is indeed part of it but there's so much more to individuality the way that Mill is thinking about it. He talks about it as being connected with these following things, civilization, instruction, education, and culture. And there what we're seeing is something that goes definitely beyond the scope of just the individual and individuals, something that we would think would be binding them together, some overarching, whatever we want to call it, principle of community and continuity. Consider instruction and education. Those are often provided by one generation to another. We can say something even more sweeping for culture or civilization. And Mill thinks that individuality, nevertheless, actually plays a really important role in this. He says, if it were felt that the free development of individuality is one of the leading essentials of well-being, that it is not only a coordinate element with all that is designated by these terms, civilization, instruction, education, and culture, but is itself a necessary part and condition of all these things. And then he he goes on with that. So he's saying that not only is individuality an element in these, even a coordinating element, right? Something on the same level, but rather that individuality itself of the human being, of human beings, since he's a pluralist about individuality, is going to provide a kind of basis for these. And he's not just thinking, he's a utilitarian, he's not just thinking of some sort of aggregate, he's saying that real individuality in real people plays a role in the development and the ongoing fertility or relevancy of these things. As a matter of fact, when civilization or culture or education becomes just a matter of going through the paces and imitation, that ape-like faculty, as he calls it, they lose something of their meaning, just as much so as was the case earlier in chapter two with truths that are merely memorized from teachers and books and not actually thought through and lived through. So this is a quite an important point 
Going on a little bit further, we can get some specification. And he brings up this philosopher, Willem von Humboldt, who says that the end of man or that which is prescribed by eternal or immutable dictates of reason and not suggested by vague and transient desires is the highest and most harmonious development of his powers to a complete and consistent whole. And so what does this mean? So the end or the goal, the purpose is the highest and most harmonious development of powers to a complete and consistent whole. This doesn't mean just developing each thing as if it was a set of role-playing stats, like, you know, I'm going to jack up my strength and my dexterity and my wisdom, all of them to 18 or 20 or 25 or whatever, whatever you're, you're playing, right? There has to be coordination. There has to be integration. There has to be harmonious, as he says, and consistency involved in this. So our harmonious development, they work together consistent whole. We are that whole as human beings. So, you know, this is kind of similar to earlier notions of human perfection or fulfillment. When you see perfection here, don't think of like ticking off boxes, but think instead of realization of what human nature is really capable of, the realization of capacities or possibilities. Doing so means uniting them together. And this would be part of the development of individuality. This is what we're aiming at, according to Mill, who's taking this from von Humboldt. He could have taken it from many others as well, Mary Wollstonecraft, for example. So he talks here about several different things that are connected with this. He says that this is the object towards which every human being must ceaselessly direct his efforts and on which especially those who design to influence their fellow men must ever keep their eyes is the individuality of power and development. All right, so capacity and the development of that capacity. That for this, there are two requisites, freedom and variety of situations. Let's pause on that for a moment. It's not just if you want to develop individuality that you got to let people be free to make their own mistakes and try things on. And there's a range of different possibilities rather than just a, this is the way things are done, right? There have to be a variety of situations. Again, Mill is a pluralist when it comes to these matters. He thinks that a society in which there are a lot of live options that people can try out or the capacity to make their own option is needed for this. And he goes on a little bit further and says that, that from the union of these, freedom, variety of situations, power and development, arise what? Individual vigor and manifold diversity. So individuality involves a kind of development of strength and manifold diversity. He goes on a little bit and says, these combine themselves in originality. So a lot of different moving parts here. The other main thing that we need to think about is, all right, so what in us does this involve? What are these powers that we're developing to a complete and consistent whole? And Mill gives us a considerable amount of his moral psychology or anthropology in this very chapter. 
When he's talking about the need to engage in choosing and committing ourselves one way or another, he brings up a number of different human faculties and capacities. He tells us that perception, our capacity to take in information from the outside world, not only about pure perceptual qualities like the taste of something or the smell of the air or the feel of my finger against my cheekbone or things like that, but also our other faculties of perception as well. Judgment, our ability to develop new information out of the situation that we're in, to act as judges and say, this is the case, this is not the case. Discriminative feeling. This is very important. Discriminative feeling isn't just feeling, like feeling sad, but feeling sad about this and not this, right? Or feeling an aesthetic response towards something. Mental activity covering a wide range of things from imagination, memory, understanding, reasoning, moral preference. This is also a very important capacity for us human beings. And individuality is going to extend to all of these different things. Take for an example, the provision of a single flower proffered to another person in a situation. We can perceive it. We can make a judgment about it. We can have a sort of aesthetic response to it. We can think about where did this flower come from? And we can realize through our moral sense that this is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. Somebody who is giving the single dark red rose to somebody whose date has just gotten up to go to the bathroom attempting to seduce them, right? Bad, right? Somebody who is bringing that rose at the beginning of the date. We say that's right. And notice this is a, an aesthetic phenomenon that we have moral judgments about. And this all enters into the scope of individuality, both of the actor and of the perceiver. He also tells us that our desires and impulses, and he uses the term feelings and susceptibility in that passage as well, are important that having our own desires and impulses is part of what makes us individuals, not just those provoked or supplied to us by, for example, in our time, targeted advertising or being told that, you know, we need to conform to particular stereotypes, whether these have to do with gender or ethnicity or class or things like that. You know, Dudes don't cry, for example. Well, as a matter of fact, some pretty cool dudes throughout the history of actual history and literature, like Odysseus, for example, have desires and impulses, acting on our own desires and impulses in an autonomous way. This is part of individuality. So it's not just all top level stuff like the intellect and the will. It's also all this other stuff. The fact that I prefer hearing this kind of music or the experience of being in a certain kind of prairie on a hot day and seeing the bees and butterflies and birds flitting around. Part of my individuality, perhaps not part of yours. He also talks at another place about great energies guided by vigorous reason, strong feelings by conscientious will. This goes back to that complete and consistent whole. We don't want to have atrophied or underdeveloped human capacities. We want them firing, as we say, on all cylinders, but we want them to be coordinated. So you're not just a jangly bag of feelings drawing you in all sorts of different directions, never able to concentrate on a particular 
particular project. This leads us to another thing, our social and moral capacities. Mill thinks, and he, he writes about this in two places here in this chapter, that if we want to develop our own individuality, we have to understand that we exist within a matrix of other individualities who have rights who have legitimate interests that we ought not to transgress, that there is something that we can call justice. And Mill has a brilliant analysis of justice, breaking it down into a number of different components in another work called Utilitarianism, part five of that. And he also talks about genius. Genius isn't really genius in a full sense unless it recognizes the legitimate needs and interests and rights of other people. That recognizing this helps us to develop a very important set of capacities within us that realize our human nature. Finally, we should talk about the aesthetic. He brings up this at several different points, but it's really running throughout the entire chapter. Our appreciation for the cultivated and developed and most likely unfinished and finite individuality of ourselves and of others can be done in a way that involves an aesthetic response where we find it beautiful or ugly, honorable or base. Maybe a work in progress is another way of thinking about it. As when we look at some of Rembrandt's sketches and we say, wow, that's, that's a, some cool penmanship. I wonder what sort of painting it was to develop into. And so this aesthetic capacity that we have is incredibly important and is just as much part of our individuality as is the, you know, social, political, moral, as is the intellectual, as is the desirous and appetitive or impulsive. In fact, you could say that the aesthetic in a certain sense is what brings all of these things together. This notion of being a complete and consistent whole is a aesthetic value as well as intellectual or moral. So this gives you some idea of what Mill conceives of as falling within the scope or province of individuality, not just in general, but for all of us as individuals, me, you, everybody else that we encounter. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.